and the rest of you. The rest of you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Ooh. There's only 66 to choose from. You knew it was going to be one of them. Um, yes, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, the book of Malachi. You can find uh, Malachi. I'll give you plenty of time. Don't worry. You're not, you didn't, it's not a race. Um, and once you've got your place there, put a bookmark or something in that spot that you'll use all month. And then go to Haggai chapter 1, which is going to be even harder for you to find. And then put a marker there. You've got two books marked. And then sit at the edge of your seat, not knowing which one I'm going to go to first. Because I'm not telling. But you've got plenty of time before I read the passage, so you'll, uh, and I know you'll need it. What are we doing? Flipping in our Bibles to find these two books that you haven't read in a while. Well, they're harder to find, not just because you don't read Malachi and Haggai so much, but they're small. So you can't just open your Bible to like Psalms where it just naturally opens there. Um, but what are we doing? What are we doing in the month of November in these two books? I'm sure glad you asked. In our midweek Bible study held at a church near you on Wednesday nights and Thursday mornings, we've been studying the book of Ezra. Uh, getting ready to continue the story in the book of Nehemiah. These books tell the story of Israel, Judah, really, uh, returning to Jerusalem after 70 years in exile in Babylon. Uh, it tells the story of the rebuilding of, really, a nation, but it tells the rebuilding of the, the temple, that's what Ezra is mostly about, and rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem, that's what Nehemiah is mostly about. Haggai and Malachi and Zechariah also are three men of God who prophesy during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. Right now on Wednesdays and Thursdays, we're studying Zechariah, and now on Sunday mornings, we're getting the other two prophets, Haggai and Malachi. That's right. This whole thing is just an infomercial for midweek Bible study. <laughs> you should come. It's, it's pretty good. We like it. Uh, now, these two men... These two prophets that we're going to be studying for the next four weeks, Haggai and Malachi, did not know each other. Uh, they were not contemporaries. They were separated by several decades. Haggai addresses the first generation that returns to Jerusalem, along with Zechariah. And then down the line, Malachi addresses their grandchildren. So both Haggai and Malachi are addressing a nation. They're addressing people who had neglected their callings, and essentially traded true worship and true obedience for something self-centered. Um, knowing that the word of God is profitable, even to this day, for correction, for reproof, knowing that the words that these prophets spoke will be applied by the Holy Spirit who inspired these words initially, we need to pray. Um, because these words will be applied to the church by the Spirit with the same force of conviction and grace that he ministers to his people in, in throughout the Old Testament. So would you pray with me once more uh, for our study in Malachi and Haggai? Jesus, we worship you. We love you. We love that you are the fulfillment of all the hopes that these prophets present. Uh, we thank you that your church uh, is, is chosen, that we are your people, that uh, we have inherited promises that are rich and undeserved. Uh, we pray for for, for us, we pray for our hearts that we would be tender to the words that you speak through your prophets. Even separated by millennia now, but we, we know these words that you wrote are for us, for our good, for our learning. 
and to shape us into the image of Christ. So we pray that that would be the result of this study. Amen. Amen. So we're studying two different books separated by 60 to 100 years. Um, And the fact that both prophecies exist can be seen in a couple different ways. You could could look at the bright side and see that the legacy of the prophet Haggai was alive and well in Malachi. You could be encouraged that God doesn't leave his people without a witness, that every generation has a witness, a voice to speak to them about their needs. You could be encouraged that there are preachers today who continue the good work of preachers from 50 and 100 years ago. Uh, That's nice to think about. However, It's difficult to look at the situation with these two prophets with unbridled optimism. Uh, Because the fact is, the message of Malachi, that last book in the Old Testament, the message of Malachi was needed in part because the prophecies of Haggai and his buddy Zechariah had been forgotten or neglected. Haggai encouraged the people to build a temple, and they did. But by the time Malachi shows up a generation down the road, they have a temple that they care nothing about. They have a temple, but they don't love the God who lives outside and beyond and above all temples. They have an altar, but they're not really interested in offering their best. Now, that, that kind of rise and fall, up and down, ascent and decline, that's, that's kind of the whole story of the Old Testament, isn't it? Uh, you know, there's a garden. That sounds nice. Mm, doesn't end that way. They get kicked out. But they populate the world. But there's a flood. But eight people are saved. But there's another garden, and things don't go well in that one either, Noah. But there's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Yeah, but have you met them? It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then, you know, and then there's, there's slavery in Egypt, but there's a rescue. There's the exodus, which leads to 40 years of death in the wilderness. Are you seeing this theme played out? You could graph it like a heartbeat on an EKG, right? It's up and down and up and down. This kind of thing is probably most clearly seen in the book of Judges when you get it in a, like a, kind of a rapid fire, generation to generation schedule. There's rescue, deliverance, prosperity, forgetfulness, oppression, and then the oppressed people cry out to the Lord, and then you do it again, over and over and over again. We are uh, the inheritors of the forgetfulness of Israel. We are a forgetful people, and God is consistently rescuing the helpless. That's the story. We need to hear the messages that were preached to previous generations so they're not forgotten, We need to remember the message that is preached to our generation and be faithful to pass it on to our children. Now, in Malachi, there are solutions offered because the prophets don't leave the people without hope, right? There are solutions offered to the sins and failures that have plagued Israel for centuries. There's no new problems being addressed because there's never really such a thing as a new problem. But here are the old problems that had been faced before that we face still. One, people lose sight of their father's love. That's a big problem, and it keeps happening every generation. So Malachi chapter 1 begins with God saying clearly what the people had forgotten. I have loved you. That's how the prophet starts. Second old problem that keeps being repeated, without this understanding of the father's love, people neglect commitment. To God, of course, to worship. But beyond that, they, they, they lose sight of commitment. They neglect commitment to their wives and to their children, which Malachi will address in a later chapter. So most of Malachi is going to be concerned with getting God's people back into their devotional habits 
and putting their religious life back in order. I mentioned the things that go wrong in every generation that Malachi addresses. They lose sight of God's love for them. We need that reminder every generation, every day, really. They abandon their commitments, which is a natural result of losing sight of the Father's love. And then third and finally, which is really just a restating of that second point, God's people, fathers in particular, stop raising their sons. That's, that was Israel's problem. And this is a generational problem that has to be addressed with every generation of fathers. Now, this is an undercurrent in the book and in the larger story of Israel's repeated failures, even the connection between Haggai and Malachi and how we can study two books at the same time. The generation that received the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, they built the temple. They do good work. But these people do not raise children who love the temple. You'll even see in Nehemiah that they don't even raise their children with much awareness of the temple. Those kids don't even speak Hebrew. They can't even sing the Psalms. That's why we get Malachi down the road. The generation that Haggai prophesied to came from Babylon. And, and when Israel was in Babylon, when they were in exile, they worked really hard to maintain a kind of a purity of their nation. They had genealogies that they kept carefully. They worked hard to preserve Israel's culture. But the kids they raised and their grandchildren made a culture of divorce. The divorce epidemic is one of the things that Malachi and Nehemiah address head on. The forgetfulness from one generation to the next. It's not surprising in that it happens in some way nearly every generation. It's predictable, but it should not be considered as a, as a foregone conclusion. It's not something that cannot be avoided or tended to. Malachi ends with a promise and a curse. Um, there's hope and there's doom in the last verses of Malachi. I'm going to read them to you. This is how the Old Testament ends. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. We're beginning at the end here. This is where we're headed. We're going to start this study with this end in mind. The hope for this generation of forgetful people is that fathers will once more have their hearts turned towards their children and that the children's hearts will be turned toward their fathers. This is the hope of Israel. Now it says, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse, meaning unless this relationship in families is restored, and unless these hearts are turned once more towards each other, a curse is inevitable. That's what it says. And this is where the Old Testament ends. It's where the book of Malachi ends. God promising to send help, which will connect fathers to their children. That's what he wants to do. And of course, that's what he is doing through the prophets. Remember, God's the father whose heart is constantly toward his children. And Israel is the child whose heart is being turned towards their father through the preaching of the prophets. As we work through Malachi, we're going to have this last verse as a sort of lighthouse bringing us into the harbor. This is the goal we're heading towards. This is what we see God the Father doing for his wayward children. Now with that hope a long way off, I want to read you the beginning of the prophecy of Haggai, which takes place again a generation before Malachi. Haggai is a short little book, two chapters, starts in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, 
and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Shout out to all my midweek Bible study people who actually know who these guys are. Way to go. Pat yourself on the back. Okay, not even going to talk about it right now, though. You just got to come. You just got to show up. Saying, verse 2, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Those final words are important. They sum up the prophet's entire message and set the tone for everything else he's going to say. Consider your ways. You need, to, you need to take a good long look in the mirror and see what you're doing with your life. A few details here. When, when Haggai preaches this message, the work on this new temple had begun, but it had been stopped for 15 years. They had laid the foundations of the temple, but then got kind of distracted and discouraged and stopped building. There are actually two reasons why they stopped doing the work that God had called them to do. Um, They faced opposition from hostile neighbors, and then what I consider to be a worse threat, they just stopped caring. It would be easier to have a little bit of pity on them, you know, for the first thing, if it wasn't for the second thing being so distasteful. It was fear of man being greater than fear of the Lord, and that's serious. That's what stopped the temple building initially. But the lack of care that came after that is is just as bad as the fear. Again, you can almost sympathize with people for ceasing construction under the threats of mobs and armies, but it's hard to excuse the indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. And that's what the people, that's what the prophets war against. So after building stops because of fear, it just stays stopped. Because of this unholy complacency. Just, I don't really care. It's just a shrug. So Haggai and Zechariah are raised up to encourage the people to start building again. And so Haggai holds up a mirror for the people to see themselves in. And in verse 2, he says, This people say, The time hasn't come that the Lord's house should be built. Now watch out for this next part. It might sting. Um, This may be convicting. How many times do we cover up disobedience by hiding it beneath the phrase, not yet. Not right now. The timing's not right. I'll serve the Lord when I'm done with my stuff, or when I get older, or when I'm retired, or when a better opportunity arises. The people of Israel had been called to build, but they had convinced themselves that there's a loophole of not yet. The time's not come. It's not time for the Lord's house to be built. That's for the future. That's for later. Maybe even for future generations. This is a theme that keeps coming up in, in our church, actually. When we were going through 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just a couple months ago, we saw the importance of following through with callings that had been placed on your heart. So here it is again, if you missed it in September. If there is an idea, a calling for a good work, a vision, a hope that the Lord has placed on your heart. Bring that out into the open and see if it's time to put thoughts into actions. Old orders are good orders. Don't just say it's not time, that's for later, or that's for someone else. Haggai's prophecy gets more personal in the next verse. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses as this temple and this temple to lie in ruins? You say it's not time to do the Lord's will, but you sure think it is time for you to do your own will. Whose kingdom are you building? It's not time to build the Lord's house, but your houses are getting all the improvements they need. Does that sound right 
The prophets are there to encourage the building of God's house, the building of the temple. But as always, it's not just about the work and it's not just about a building. It was about the nation's heart. It was about the heart of individuals in Israel. The people were valuing their own houses above the house of God. And so, verse 5 again, the prophet challenges them and invites some introspection. Consider your ways. You judge and see if you have your priorities in order. Look at your calendar. Look at your checkbook. Find out what's important to you and ask yourself, is this right? Consider your ways. Now, spoiler alert, they do. They do consider their ways. And they build the temple. But time goes by a lot of time. Somewhere in the range between 60 and 100 years, the temple's built and the temple is neglected. So another prophet comes on the scene to prophesy to that generation's grandkids. Now listen to his opening line. You turn to Malachi chapter 1. In verse 2 it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's a great start. It's a great end too, really, but it's a great start. The prophets always give a call to repentance. But what is it that leads men to repentance? It's the goodness of God, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Malachi brings the message of the Father to a nation of prodigals. And before a single word of judgment or correction comes God's word to his loved ones, I have loved you. These words echo through the ages. They anticipate Christ's coming, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It anticipates uh, the gospel, of course, and the format of all of Paul's epistles, which talk about Jesus a whole lot and what he's done first, and then later on give people instructions and corrections if needed. The men of God throughout the ages have understood the power of divine love to transform hearts and lives. It is good that we start here. I told you how this book ends. It ends with a promise to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. But it begins here with the heart of the Father that changes not, whose compassions fail not, in whom is no variation or shadow of turning. So we contemplate the depth of God's love for us and see what he has done for us. And at the beginning of these prophecies, we are drawn into his embrace, recognizing that it is his love which is the catalyst for our repentance and renewal. It's always got to go in that direction. It's this profound love that calls us back to the Father, inviting us to turn from our ways and embrace his grace. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. These first words show exactly what God is trying to communicate to the people for the rest of the book, and why he sends prophets in the first place. It's because he loves people a ton. And we see why God had to send prophets in the first place. It's because the people had forgotten the love of the Father. Of course, there are sins that are being corrected. There's all this stuff about true temple worship. He's going to get into uh, divorce and caring for your children later on in the book. But how did they get there? How did they get to that place where they needed those specific corrections? They got there by, uh, by questioning and doubting and forgetting God's love for them. Read it again. God says, I have loved you, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? That's a hard question from a hard heart. 
Now, it's possible that that kind of question could be honest, coming from an unbeliever. If you're witnessing to someone, you say, God loves you, and they say, really? Yeah, but how? That's an open door. Tell them how. That sounds like an open door, but it's not the question you want to hear from your wife. I love you. Really? Name one time. (laughs) Ouch. Like, that's not good. That is the wrong place for the question. That's kind of what's going on here. Israel is God's covenant people. They are his bride, and they are taking the covenant lightly. God says, I've loved you, and they say, really? How? When? And so the prophet gives them a brief history lesson by comparing their place in the world with their neighbor, the neighboring nation of Edom, which had been pretty well annihilated some decades before this. God is saying, I think you can look at recent history and conclude that I have favorites. God has favorites. One of these peoples, Edom, Israel, One of these peoples have a special deal with me. Israel, descended from Jacob, inherited a covenant which included promises of God's eternal care and a goodie bag full of other blessings that included the very land that they were standing on. God is drawing their attention to the facts. Both Israel and neighboring Edom had been destroyed politically and geographically by oppressing kingdoms and empires. But only one of those nations is rebuilding. And God is pointing out, I'm the one who raises up nations. I'm the one who puts them down. And I have loved you in ways that other nations can't even imagine. And then there's this hint of a promise, but they will. They're going to be able to imagine it. I'll be glorified outside the bounds of Israel and all nations will see me. But I'm getting ahead of myself with that. Israel is being reminded of the special place they hold in the heart of God. He's reminding them of this by way of comparison, showing them that his love for his covenant people is special. It's unique. By showing them the Edomites, who were judged for their idolatry and their cruelty, and you can read more about that in Obadiah if you want to, God has had mercy on Israel in bringing them back to the land and allowing them to rebuild their nation. Israel was family. They're called God's wife sometimes. Other times they're called God's son. Families treated differently. That's kind of where the argument goes in this next section. Just as God has shown his love to Israel by his special treatment, he's now showing their injustice in the lack of reciprocation. God treats them well, but they don't seem to want to treat him well. We just read this in 2 Corinthians. Paul had said, the more I love, the less I am loved in return. This is a sentiment that God shared with his people. Look at verse 6. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? The Lord was being dishonored in the temple worship. His name was being despised, being defiled. These are serious charges. And the objections to the harsh accusations are anticipated. The priests who despised his name would ask, how, in what way? And the Lord would point to the altar and their sacrifices and say, this is how. You've said with your own mouths that the table of the Lord is contemptible. Now, the term table of the Lord, it's interesting. We're going to come back to that in a second. But first, the way in which they despised the altar was simply that they did not bring their best to offer to God in worship. Actually, it kind of sounds like they were bringing their worst because, again, apathy had replaced love, and they were like, this doesn't even matter. This doesn't, none of this matters. We're just going through the motions. 
And the prophet asks, if you were bringing the sick animal as a gift to a, to a human being, if you were bringing that as a gift to your governor, do you think that he's going to like that? How do you think that's going to go? If this is a present you give someone, do you think they're going to appreciate your three-legged blind sheep? Like that's, no, no. Everyone's going to take that as an insult. That, that's a disrespectful gesture. So God explains to them that their flippant attitudes in worship, their carelessness in their, their work as priests was actually despising the name of the Lord. Your care for the things of God, your love for the Lord will be shown in the care you take in your worship and your work. You are priests who ought to be able to discern good from evil and, and know that you ought to offer the Lord your very best. Now, I said that I'd go back to this phrase, table of the Lord. It shows up in verse 7 and verse 12. But this chapter is the only time in the Old Testament that the altar is called the table of the Lord or the Lord's table. It would be the only time in all of Scripture that this phrase is used at all, except that Paul lifts it from Malachi and uses it in 1 Corinthians 10 when he's talking about communion. Hold that thought. We'll come back to that too. Look at verse 9. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands, nor from the, for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, verse 10 is God wishing someone would shut the doors of the temple. He's saying, can't I find someone who is offended by this kind of worship as much as I am, who will just shut the whole thing down? Now, as shocking as that might sound, the Lord speaks like this through other prophets as well. Jeremiah 6.20 says, your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifice is pleasing to me. Uh, or how about Isaiah chapter 1? God calls Jerusalem Sodom and Gomorrah because they were that bad. And then he, he says that when you're coming here, you're trampling my courts. Like you, you showing up offering like this is just messing the place up. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, Isaiah 1.13. That's the same kind of thing he's saying in Malachi, isn't it? But it, he's, he's clear that if the bad worship, if this careless worship, this blasphemous worship stops, that doesn't mean worship stops. Even though the Jews' worship would cease. There would come a time when Gentiles would worship God all around the world. Look at verse 11 again. From the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations. He's saying there is a true act of worship that will spill over and outside the bounds of your temple. Now remember verse 5. Look back at verse 5. It says, Your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. He's not just talking about Edom's destruction there. The Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel, not because God judges other nations, but because God saves other nations. While Israel's worship was declining, God is saying, I will raise up Gentile nations to worship me. Worship of God won't be limited to a temple. It won't be limited to one nation. It will be global. It will be from the rising of the sun to its setting. That's all the way around the globe, east to west. And this is, of course, is exactly what Jesus promises the woman at the well, right? Now, Paul, 
takes this little verse from Malachi and he, he applies it to communion. Again, there's only two passages that ever use the phrase the Lord's table or the table of the Lord. And the early church saw the connection. The generation that existed after Paul saw this connection. They owned it in the, the Didache, which is the earliest policies and procedures manual for churches that we have. Malachi 1.11 and Malachi 1.14 are interpreted and applied to communion. Listen to this. This was probably written before 100 AD. It's pretty old. Assemble on the Lord's day and break bread and offer the Eucharist. But first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. For this is the offering of which the Lord has said, Everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of nations. That's a verse from Malachi chapter 1. Sometime later, in 155 AD, Justin Martyr, he picks up the same idea in a debate with a Jewish scholar named Trifo. And he says to him, he says, God speaks by the mouth of Malachi, as I said before, about the sacrifices at that time presented by you, meaning the Jewish temple worship. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord, and I will not accept your sacrifices at your hands. For from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, my name has been glorified among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense is offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name is great among the Gentiles. Malachi 1, 10 and 11. He then speaks of those Gentiles. This is still Justin speaking, not Sam. He then speaks of those Gentiles, namely us Christians, who in every place offer sacrifices to him, that is, the bread of the Eucharist and also the cup of the Eucharist. For the sake of time, I won't share the next quote in its entirety, but in 189 AD, Irenaeus makes the same argument in his work against heresies. He says, this is what Malachi is talking about. He's talking about the church meeting together and having communion. That's a witness of over 100 years, beginning with Paul, all agreeing that this verse in Malachi is a prophecy about Christian worship around the Lord's table. When we come to communion, we worship. When we despise the table of the Lord, we are guilty of everything that Malachi is talking about to Israel. In communion, it's a little different than what they were going through. In communion, there's no blind sheep. There's no lame offering. Do you know why? It's not because we're offering our own works or even our own selves. We're presenting Christ, and he is presenting himself to us. The offering that replaced all these inferior offerings wasn't better sheep, ultimately. It wasn't a lamb in better condition or even a group of more sincere worshipers. The offering is Jesus. We come to the Father and claim the righteousness of Christ and say, this is the only perfect sacrifice. He is the sacrifice that you will be pleased with. And the result then is that we take the table of the Lord even more seriously than those who had inferior offerings to sacrifice. When we come to worship the Lord, we have this in mind, the holiness of this offering that is pleasing to God. Keep reading in Malachi, verse 12. But you profane it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. This is not what worship sounds like. If people know how God has loved them, they don't say, what a weariness, to go have a meal with him. There's no room for sneering in the one who has seen how deeply they are loved by God. But these, these priests who had lost sight of that, they're addressed, again, verse 13, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hands, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifice to the Lord who is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. 
God, through Haggai, a generation before, said this, Consider your ways. Now, God, through his prophet Malachi, says, Consider my ways. Consider how much I've loved you. We need both messages. They both belong. We need the messages to both generations. We need Haggai and we need Malachi. And we need Zechariah too, but you've got to come on Wednesday nights for that. We need the blend and the balance as both, pro- as both prophets are addressing people who care more for self than the things of God. We are rebuked in our disordered loves. We are confronted with disordered priorities and, have, and we're confronted with the immense love God has for his erring children. And we see how while our passions wane, they change, our desire for good things is weak, we are prone to compromise, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And yet in all our weakness, he shouts to us, I have loved you. And when we rule our tiny little kingdoms, like those in Haggai focusing on their own possessions more than the things of God, or the priests in Malachi saying, I could offer this to God, but I think I have something in the back of the drawer that he might like, and I'll just keep the best for myself. When we're focusing on our own possessions more than the things of God, giving our second, third, or fourth best to the Lord, we hear the Lord say, I am a great king. I'm the great king. My name is to be feared among the nations. As we go through this series, through these two prophets, the Lord will be glorified. He said as much. We will be humbled. And we will be comforted by his great love for us. In each chapter, in each verse, our prayer will be... As it is this morning, let us worship well without the self-centeredness, without the laziness, without the weariness that selfishness breeds. Let us know and see the love of God for us. And may our actions be a proper response to his unchanging grace and relentless pursuit of our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask for your grace, for your spirit that would enable us to worship well. We pray that you would speak to your church and draw us into the holy place where we offer nothing but a plea for help and a a faith in Christ's righteousness. We thank you for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We fix our eyes on him and ask your blessing on us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Afterwards, as usual, there will be people happy to pray with you up front. The rest of you get out of here and eat potluck food. (laughs) Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father. sent.